Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Nobody likes to be alone, and much has been written of late about our epidemic of loneliness and the psychic price that we pay for it. In some ways, the same idea transcends the globe as we wonder if we're alone in the cosmos. The idea affects each of us differently. Certainly, science fiction has given us many versions of what might be out there, but it seems that the personal way we imagine the potential of life beyond Earth is a kind of Rorschach test of how we see the world, what constitutes life, and our need to be connected to something larger, even on an intergalactic scale. This leap of imagination is part of what my guest Jamie Green writes about in her new book, The Possibility of Life. Jamie Green is a science writer, essayist, editor, and teacher. She is the series editor of the best American science fiction and nature writing, and her new book is The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Jamie Green, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. A delight to have you here. It does seem to be that the way we imagine the possibility of life out there somewhere in the cosmos, that that each of us sees it in our own personal way or imagines it, I guess, in our own personal way. And it is kind of a Rorschach test of, of how we see the world. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think I think it's either a reflection of our hopes or our fears. Um you know, I think sometimes we even see cultural guilt coming through in sci-fi stories or in fears of what might happen in terms of conquest, you know, um, thinking that aliens are going to come try to colonize Earth. Well, that's coming from a culture that has done a lot of colonizing on Earth already. And I think that, um, you know, when we think about what might be out there, it's impossible to separate that from what we want to be out there, that we want there to be this kind of galactic community, that we want there to be life on lots of other worlds. It's very hopeful. Um, and so we imagine, you know, through the ways that we interpret science or the stories we tell, we try to sort of imagine that into being. Do we have a kind of so what would be equivalent to a kind of survivor's guilt by virtue of thinking that perhaps we are the only ones out there? Absolutely, especially because we're in right now what Carl Sagan called our technological adolescence, meaning that humanity has, you know, within the last century or even less, come into the kind of technological power that could allow us to destroy ourselves and to make the world uninhabitable for a lot of other species. When Sagan was writing, he was talking about nuclear weapons, but, you know, uh, humans have found lots of ways to potentially destroy the world. And that feels like a lot of pressure. You know, that technological adolescence metaphor is sort of like we're teenagers who have the keys to the car, but maybe don't have the sense of responsibility to handle it well. Um, not that thinking that there's life on other worlds makes it okay to ruin life on this one. But, um, you know, we... I think we see a lot of ways that humanity is not doing our best as a society, as a, as, you know, global cultures. And the idea that we're all there is uh, just makes that feel even scarier because it also means there's no one coming to save us. There's no advanced aliens who would come in and say, oh, here's technology for infinite energy or here's how, you know, to move your whole planet into peace. 
Right. One of the things you talk about is this idea of just imagining some place or, or an evolution with without Darwinian evolution that, that, that sort of operates on a whole different plane. Yeah, that was one of the ideas I encountered in my research that really blew my mind. I was reading a book um, called Improbable Destinies by evolutionary biologist Jonathan B. Loso. It's a really fabulous book. It's, you know, aimed at a general audience. And just as an aside, he mentions that life on another planet wouldn't necessarily have to follow Darwinian evolution. And that blew my mind because I had assumed that that was a fundamental law of life. Um, one of the great things about writing a book is you encounter an idea like that. And as long as the author is still living, you shoot, can shoot them an email and say, hi, I'm <laughs> writing a book. Can I interview you? Um, and I w- was really glad that I got to talk to Losos about that. And really, um, in order to have Darwinian evolution, you need to have species, you need to have some sort of competition, you need genes to be passed down from parent to offspring. And we even see in bacteria on Earth, you could argue that Darwinian evolution is not the main driving factor for change among bacteria, or some researchers even say that we shouldn't think about bacteria as having distinct species, because not only do they transmit genes, you know, to their offspring or to the next generation, but they um, acquire new genes through something called horizontal gene transfer, sort of just like leaking genes between bacteria, which is like how antibiotic resistance spreads so quickly. Um, It can move between species. And so, you know, on another planet, who knows, maybe genes that are heritable wouldn't be contained just in like special cells for passing down to offspring. Maybe if you sneezed on someone or brushed arms with them, you could pick up some genes that might be advantageous. The other part of it is is this whole notion that that somehow science fiction has shaped so much of our view of what might be out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's this is not a, a I didn't come up with the idea. We know that, you know, the idea for rockets started in science fiction. Um, lots of sort of seemingly out there ideas start in science fiction. When you look at Star Trek, um, the original series, their tricorders and communication devices really look like old flip phones, um, which now, you know, are old. Um, They have iPads. But what's really interesting is like on Star Trek The Next Generation, they read documents on iPads and it's like a different tablet for every document. They just sort of didn't get the leap that all the documents might be on one tablet. But what I also wanted to look at was how the conversation keeps moving back and forth in both directions. Sci-fi is obviously inspired by science. You know, you take a finding and take it five steps farther or a hundred steps farther, you know, depending on whether you're looking at the near future or the far future. And even fantastical things like faster than light travel often in sci-fi have at least a sort of scientific explanation, even if it's not a solution that we ever think we're going to come up with. Um, But Beyond just looking at the trait of specific ideas, I wanted to look at how science and sci-fi are connected in this project of imagining possibilities. We know that sci-fi is imaginative, but by putting it in conversation with science, I wanted to show how science is also an imaginative pursuit. That yes, we're looking for answers, but we're also exploring possibilities and trying to stretch our imagination to 
find things to look for that we hadn't even conceived of yet. I mean, in many ways, science is the the triumph of curiosity, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it is imaginative. It's not just like, ooh, what is the fact in trying to sort of narrow down the possibilities to the correct answer. Even something as fundamental as making a hypothesis is about predicting an outcome that you think you're going to see. And that's a, a, a an imaginative act. It's imagining what the outcome of an experiment is going to be. It, there's also so much imaginative work in devising experiments and in devising new frameworks, especially those big leaps that change how we understand the world. Um, you know, whether it's Copernicus figuring out that the Earth isn't the center of the solar system or Einstein figuring out that gravity is the curvature of space-time, you have to be able to see the world in a whole new way, which is about imagination. We also use imagination to make sense of scientific discoveries. You know, if we, um, and a lot of sci-fi is that, like, okay, we've discovered that there are lots of planets that are very different from Earth. So there are sci-fi stories set on planets like that to help us sort of process this new information. As it relates to thinking about who or what might be out there in the cosmos, it requires imagination that lacks scientific evidence. It's all imagination at this point. Yeah, like the the more complex a life form you want to imagine, the less scientific grounding you have, um, sort of because the possibilities expand more and more. Like if you're looking at what the chemistry of life might be, there's, you know, we, we sort of know the constraints on chemistry. We know all the elements. We know how they make bonds. But then if you're thinking about what kind of animals might be on another planet, there are so many steps, so many like branching decisions that lead to a particular outcome. And a big thing we don't know is if life on another planet would follow a similar path that life on as to what life on earth has followed because that is the best path you know like um is standing upright with two feet and two hands and a head on top the ideal form for an intelligent animal or is that just what happened to work here and that's really a fundamental question about biology like does evolution converge on the same solutions over and over again or is it really random and you know could be totally different if a butterfly flapped its wings or an asteroid fell three inches to the left from where it actually fell in history. The other part of it is the extent to which we are not the oldest planet out there, that that civilizations could have evolved and died in in this period of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there have been generations of stars and planets before ours, and we are also very new into our technological era. You know, if you count it from radio waves, which is signals that could be found beyond Earth, it's less than 100 years. So if there is other life out there, we are probably not the first. We are probably, hopefully, not the most technologically advanced. Um, But yeah, they might have lived and died. They might have evolved into some new form that we can't find or that doesn't leave signals that we would receive, but there could be remnants. You know, one of the um, researchers I talked to in the book has done some searching, not for signals from alien civilizations, but for evidence of their technology, because that would persist. If you're not still sending out radio signals, 
there's nothing for us to receive. But if you build a mega structure around your star to absorb all of its energy and use that to power your advanced civilization, that could still be floating out there. And we might be able to find relics even if the civilization is long gone. Talk a little bit about the attitude that that prevails in certain quarters, that there's almost a lack of curiosity, almost a certainty that we are somehow alone. I actually have encountered more people taking it for granted that there must be life Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, You know, most scientists think about this in terms of odds, and you can sort of tweak the numbers however you want, because we don't know how often life might arise on a planet. We only have one example to draw from. Um, but very often, whether it's scientists or lay people, you know, we see the new images coming from the JWST, these deep images of the earliest galaxies, and they're just so many of them. And I know a lot of people saw those first images from the telescope and said, look at this. How could we possibly be alone? There's so much space there. There's so many galaxies, so many stars, Um, which, you know, sidebar, life in another galaxy, we would have no way to find them, communicate with them. It's just almost impossibly far away, almost impossible to to detect anything from there. Um, But that really has baked into it a lot of assumptions about like the universe being for life and life being common because we see all of this real estate and we think, well, what could that be for other than for life? Um, And I actually find it really humbling to look at those pictures and think that there might not be life there because the universe, life isn't central to the universe necessarily, just the same way that the earth isn't the center of the solar system, the solar system isn't the center of the universe. And I find it really humbling to think about the universe existing without us or not, you know, us just happening to be here. You know, you see pictures of galaxies interacting with each other, the gravitational dance as they circle each other and draw closer or, you know, gobble each other up. And those are relationships in the universe that have nothing to do with life. And I think that that is actually like a harder point of view to internalize because it um, it just sort of makes us feel like there's stuff going on that we can't understand. Well, it also makes us less relevant, which is hard for people yeah. to comprehend. Exactly. That, that there are forces out there far stronger than, than us. And and that's difficult, I think, for people to, to grasp sometimes. Yeah, because especially when we look at what's going on on Earth, humanity is the the driving force in terms of how we affect the climate, how we affect geology, how we affect the other species. We see ourselves as powerful, and we sort of take that for granted. But looking at ourselves in context of a universe that isn't about life or imagining super advanced aliens are both ways of giving us a different context within which to understand humanity's power. The other side of all of this is how would we react if we knew there really was life out there? Yeah, you know, in sci-fi, it's often very momentous. Of course, in sci-fi, it's also often aliens (laughs) landing on Earth, which is, uh, you know, I would say the least likely outcome. Um, And of course, that would you know, feel potentially like an invasion. It could feel like a threat. So of course it would bring up strong feelings, whether it was aggressive or not. Um, But if we were to detect signal that gave us evidence of another civilization, or if we were to find, you know, 
proof of life on Mars or on one of the moons of the outer solar system. I really don't know what that would do. I think it would be personally meaningful to a lot of people who probably already care a little bit about these sorts of things. But something fascinating to me is that up until about 100 years ago, or even the 1970s, if you think about the Mars, the first Mars lander as being a turning point, humans often took it for granted that there was life on other worlds. You know, in the Renaissance, when it was discovered that there were other planets, we thought, well, if they're made of the same things that Earth is made of, then they'll have the same life force that creates life on Earth. And so, of course, there will be life on other worlds. And in the early 1900s, there was there were thought to be canals on Mars. So people thought that there was a civilization on Mars. And until the Viking lander, some scientists thought that they might get to Mars and find grass and find obvious signs of life. Sure, not an intelligent civilization, but life. And they weren't necessarily expecting it to be so hard to find possible proof of life past or present on Mars. So it's a relatively recent change to our worldview, the idea that we're alone or possibly alone, that we're looking for signs of life that may or may not be out there. And so, you know, humanity has centuries just sort of assuming that there was life elsewhere. And so I, I don't know that it would be such a huge social societal change. I wonder, though, how it impacts or how it might impact what we do, the decisions we make here on this planet, if we knew that there was life elsewhere out there. There's definitely a hope among some people that, um, you know, it would give us this new sense of context, this new sense of responsibility, maybe this new sense of connection when we see how similar humans are to each other compared to this new alien other, and the hope that it might, you know, spur us into action to save the earth, to stop climate change, to end war. I think, you know, we know that we're doing bad things on earth. We know that the climate is in trouble. We know that poverty is bad. We know that hurting people is bad. You know, like it's, it's, we need to take responsibility ourselves, I think, and not wait for some extraterrestrial voice from the heavens to come shock us into action. Like we know everything we need to know in order to make changes, to make society more just and to take care of the environment. And like, we shouldn't be waiting for aliens to come save us. Right. It, I don't know that it's aliens as much as just, as you said, it's a different context. And sometimes, even though you know things are bad or that the things that are being done are, are less than, than, than excellent, it takes some outside something to, to force a change, to provide the shock in a way. Yeah. I mean, look, if that were to happen and we were to you know, get on a better track, I would be thrilled. And it's possible. But like, I just, I don't think that we're about to get that signal. And so hoping for it to, to change our ways, we need to take responsibility and shock ourselves into action. Like, we're seeing lots of things happening on Earth with, you know, floods and climate change and, and suffering and, you know, people having to migrate because of climate change, like fires, we we're getting the shocks. We need to just take responsibility and take responsibility that we're not adolescent as a society, but like move into that sort of adult responsibility. The other side of that coin is that if we are focused solely on the problems that we're facing here, 
we shouldn't at the same time take our eye off the limitless possibilities that might be going on out there and the need for continued scientific exploration in some ways of what might be out there. Right. I'm absolutely not saying like, oh, we have a lot of problems on Earth. We shouldn't be putting any money towards astronomy research. Right. You know? <laughs> um, like, I, I think that scientific knowledge about the universe, about the world and the cosmos is very important and very meaningful. Um, I mean, if we're talking budget line items, I can find some much bigger ones to cut to, you know, give kids free school lunch or whatever it is that would make things a little better. Um, and I think that what, what I think is really that, like, we don't need to wait for the knowledge to come from another life form, another civilization to be meaningful. That you know, just like I was talking about the vastness of the cosmos that we see through telescope images, our understanding of galaxies, that all gives us that huge context within which to understand ourselves. And, and then we get to choose how we make meaning of that, because right now we are the only planet that we know of with life. And whether there are others or not, this is what we know and this is what we can affect. Talk a little bit about science fiction and the way it has progressed. I mean, it, 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 by its very nature, needs to constantly be expanding, constantly be looking for something new. Yeah, I think our the role that aliens play in science fiction has gone through a lot of really interesting evolutions. It's very often a reaction to the political climate of the time. Um, so like the War of the Worlds was explicitly um, a reaction to colonization and war in Africa, the idea that, oh, maybe, you know, white Western society would be conquered instead of being the conquesters and sort of like get a taste of their own medicine. Um, and then, you know, almost 100 years later, another really wonderful, important novel called The Sparrow by Mary Daria Russell was a direct response to the 500th anniversary of Columbus of imagining, in this case, uh, you know, humans with the best of intentions coming to another world and just seeing what their presence in a new world could do. So there's lots of different ways of sort of imagining different versions of our political present or past to make sense of it, sort of like trying on the ideas and seeing how things might have been different. Our imaginings of alien biology also change a lot. Um, you know, sometimes they're monsters. Sometimes they're meant to be sort of incomprehensible. They're blobs. Um, sometimes they're a lot like us. Sometimes they're as alien as you can imagine it. And there's really been a move towards that, um, you know, starting with, I would say, Solaris in like the 1950s. But the movie Arrival, I think, was a big milestone in fiction for like really alien aliens that don't look like humans that are clearly, you know, working on a different sort of biological and evolutionary logic. Right. I mean, it's interesting in the 50s, for example, so much of the science fiction was reflective of the Cold War at the time. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, who is the other that you're fearing or what is the the chasm across which you're hoping to make a connection? And and maybe we by looking at the science fiction of today, maybe it 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 teaches us something more about our our actual condition. Absolutely, like you know, these are different ways of thinking about how we relate to people who are different from us, which I think is you know one of the most important 
things to grapple with, you know, whether it's someone in a different neighborhood or on the other side of the world. Sci-fi gives us the chance to imagine encountering people who are even more different because they're all the way from another planet. Are you optimistic in the way you see people thinking about these possibilities? I am. I think that it's very often a a place to practice empathy by stretching our imaginations, like I said, to like imagine people who are even more different than we could see on Earth and try to connect with them through fiction, whether it's through writing fiction or reading it or seeing a movie, and try to imagine the possibilities of, of connecting across that huge gulf of different experience. Um, and it's also just like a, a powerful scientific experiment of like stretching our scientific imaginations as far as they can go. And studying through science the possibility of life on other worlds helps us understand life on Earth more deeply too, both to appreciate it, but also to understand, you know, the scientific facts of how it works. And so I think that whether through science or sci-fi, uh, you know, whether we're looking for facts or for a meaningful personal experience, this is all like an expansive project and it expands our, our capacities as individuals as well. Jamie Green, her book is The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Jamie, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you.